open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. We're going to read this brief section because it brings up, summarizes many of the themes that we will encounter across the whole scope of Acts, but we're not going to look at this section in any kind of detail. Instead, we're going to fly over the terrain of Acts in order to see the big picture of this landscape. Acts chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to Stephen's death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But a certain man called Simon, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was somebody great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. When they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Just a number of things that we encounter in Acts. We have martyrdom, persecution by Saul, in the beginning, we have scattering of the church, which goes and preaches or gossips, shares the word everywhere they go. And then we also have Philip going and ministering outside Jerusalem for the first time. He goes to Samaria, as you are no doubt aware. This was an ancient schism within Judaism, dating back roughly to the time of the Assyrian exile in 722 B.C., there was mainstream Judaism in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, wow, in Jerusalem, and there was sidestream Judaism or a branch of Judaism over in Samaria, the former capital of northern Israel. So it says here that Philip went down to the city of Samaria. That really confuses us because Samaria, of course, is north of Jerusalem, but it's geographically lower. Jerusalem is on a mountain. Philip went down the north slope of the mountain to Samaria, which was north of Jerusalem. And there he preached the gospel. So we see the word going out of Jerusalem to another place. And yet, even though people are converted and even this famous sorcerer is converted, yet the Holy Spirit hasn't come. And so they need Peter and John to come and sort of bring the Holy Spirit in a certain sense to come and pray so that the Holy Spirit could come to the new converts in Samaria. All of these things are characteristic of the book of Acts as a whole. 
So let's look at that book as a whole. You all, I'm sure, have heard the fable of the king who wanted a map of his realm so accurate that the map needed to be the same size as the kingdom. Well, that's what we do most weeks in here. We take two to five to ten verses of Scripture and we talk about them for half an hour. So the map, in effect, is larger than the thing we're looking at. We look at length at each verse, and that's a good approach in general, but there are times when you need to zoom out, collapse the details, and see the big picture. What is the big picture of the book of Acts? Well, I have an outline here from Alan Thompson, an Australian who wrote a book on the theology of Acts, and you have that on the back of your bulletin. You can see right away that, according to Thompson, and I believe he's absolutely correct on this, Acts is about the reign of Christ the Lord. So he's broken the book into seven sections, and each one of those sections he begins with the reign of Christ the Lord and, or over, or proclaimed, here's the reign of Christ in the book of Acts. So we start with Christ pouring out his spirit. The third person in the Trinity, the other paraclete, the one in whose power the church grows. We talked last week a little bit about the very beginning of the book of Acts where Jesus ascends into heaven and tells the apostles, you are Israel, you are rebuilding the kingdom, you are rebooting the kingdom of God. And this new administration, this new operating system, this new user interface is going to be very different looking. In fact, in important ways, you all, you 12 apostles with the Spirit, are going to invent that. And we've emphasized, we emphasized last week the difference between the Levitical system that says, here's how many inches wide the church door should be between that Levitical system and the New Covenant system of here's the Spirit, go. And then Jesus leaves. So Jesus sends the Spirit. Once the Spirit comes, 3,000 people join 120. 2,000% growth in a single day. That's the effect of the Spirit. The Spirit brings God's power to bear on the church for growth. So the reign of Christ, we could say, is actualized, is made present through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who does the things on Jesus' behalf, just as Jesus, in his earthly life, lived by the Spirit. So, the Spirit comes, Christ's reign is manifested to people from all over the world. Acts 2 talks about that. And right away, it encounters opposition. Peter and John heal a lame man at the beginning of chapter 3, and that gets them called on the carpet before the Sanhedrin. They experience opposition because the church is growing, 
and reaching people and touching their lives and converting them. And so they're arrested. They get interviewed by the Sanhedrin. They get told not to speak in this name anymore. And that's opposition from outside, which the disciples explain in terms of Psalm 2. So chapter 4, verse 23, let go. They went to their own companions, reported what the chief priests had said. And when the church heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and quoted Psalm 2. And then they say, this is happening now. Psalm 2 is being fulfilled in this external opposition to the church. No sooner are we met with the scene of external opposition than we're met with a scene of internal opposition as Ananias and Sapphira join the church and then lie about how much they're giving. Liquidate their real estate, hand the proceeds over to the apostles or say that they're handing all of it but actually only hand some of it and then they're struck dead. So, again, God deals with that opposition. But then there's more opposition in the next chapter, the beginning of chapter 7, I should, or beginning of chapter 6. There's division within the church. A certain ethnic group is not being treated right, and they let the others know about it. And that division is then solved by appointing deacons to handle the church's charitable work. Again, Christ is reigning... Therefore, we see opposition. Therefore, we see opposition from rulers. We see it from those within the church. We see it as the church fights itself. And then finally, we see a challenge to the reign of Christ as they attempt to silence Stephen in chapter 7 by piling rocks on him until he dies. But they aren't Quick enough on the draw, they can't stone him until he says, what? I see Christ, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father. What does Stephen testify to? He testifies to the reign of Christ. That's the content of his vision that he shares and promptly gets stoned for. There's opposition to the rule of Christ, and that opposition goes from being arrested and just having a little unpleasant interview with the city authorities all the way to an act of mob violence in which Stephen is stoned. And then we read at the beginning of chapter 8 how there's this guy, Saul of Tarsus, who's kind of a ringleader of the persecution. Christ's reign is over opposition, against opposition. In other words, don't think that the gospel will spread unopposed. Your fathers persecuted the prophets, Jesus told the Jewish people of his day. In other words, if you're not getting persecuted, you're probably not a prophet. If you're not getting persecuted, you may not even be a Christian. Because Acts says over and over, it's normal for you to experience opposition for your faith. Luke moves on to show us the reign of Christ, not just against opponents who are local opponents. All of chapters 1 through 7 takes place in or just outside Jerusalem. 
We're still in the Jerusalem section of the book. But then Philip goes down to Samaria. That portion that we read, and Christ's reign spreads to outcasts. That's the Samaritans. They were expelled from mainstream Judaism. They didn't fit. They had their own version of the Bible. Right, the regular, the mainstream Jews use the King James Hebrew, and these Samaritans had their Samaritan Pentateuch. They used the NIV Hebrew, and that was just one of many, many divisions between them. But God's word comes to them anyway, and a bunch of them believe. Despite their being outcasts, Christ reigns in Samaria too, and then. The chapter goes on to speak of the Ethiopian eunuch. We mentioned him last week as the one man in the New Testament who is not a Roman citizen, or at least a subject of the Roman Empire. Again, somebody from far away who hears the gospel and is converted and is on his way back to Ethiopia to bring the good news there. Christ's reign over people far away. The the Ethiopians. And then, of course, chapter 9, we have the conversion of an enemy. Saul of Tarsus, the one who led much of the rising opposition in the first, well, chapters 3 to 8, now he's converted because Christ rules not just in Jerusalem and not just over people who like him, but also in Samaria, in Ethiopia, and in the heart of his biggest enemy. Right, this kind of thing just does not happen in ordinary periods of world history. You just rarely see somebody who's converted and goes to work for the other side that he once so fervently opposed. But here's one. Saul of Tarsus. And at other times in history it does happen. There were two brothers during the Reformation era. One was Catholic, one was Protestant. And that, was, of course, was their favorite thing to argue about. And they both argued so successfully that they each convinced the other one. So the Protestant brother became Catholic and the Catholic brother became Protestant. And then they were both very sad that they had succeeded in convincing the other one to abandon the true faith. But Saul did not convince Christ to become a Jew. Rather, Christ convinced Saul to become a Christian. Saul becomes a Christian, and from there, the book moves to showing the reign of Christ over the nations. As Peter is summoned to preach Christ in Lydda and Joppa, these places ruled by Gentiles on the shores of the Mediterranean, he preaches to Cornelius, and then soon... This Jewish Gentile church in Antioch is established. So, chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. Some of the men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they came to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. And this Antioch church then continued to be one of the most important churches in the eastern region of the world until the Muslims overran it some 700 years later. We have the gospel spreading from Jerusalem 
to Judea, to Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. Now, Syria, obviously, is a neighboring country. It's not yet the uttermost parts of the earth. But the gospel is spreading. The reign of Christ is spreading. So in chapter 12, we have Peter being rescued. Christ rules over the kings of the earth, including King Herod Agrippa. Herod kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. Chapter 12, verse 2. He arrests Peter because he realizes that these executions of Christian leaders are politically very savvy. But Christ sends his angel and lets Peter out of the prison because Christ rules over Herod too. Again, we have the reign of Christ. And then the next section, chapter 13 through really chapter 21, contains what we know as the missionary journeys of Paul. And you can break these down into four missionary journeys. That outline works pretty well, but that's not Luke's main purpose to show us four missionary journeys. Instead, as you can see on the outline, he essentially tells the same story twice. So we have a commission in Antioch in chapter 13 matched by a commission in Troas in chapter 16. We have ministry in various regions around the Mediterranean basis chapters 13 and 14, matched by ministry in various regions around the, around the Mediterranean in chapters 16 through 19. Again, the church commissions and then sends out, and then those who are sent, missionaries we call them in Latin, go and minister in these various places, planting churches all around that northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. And then... They nurture those churches that they've planted. That's a pretty quick summary usually. And then there's an evaluation in Jerusalem. The first evaluation in Jerusalem we call the Jerusalem Council. And this is near the center of Acts. It's a key chapter, chapter 15, describing how the apostles and elders met and solved the big question. The big question, of course, being the Jewish question or How do Jews and Christians relate to each other? Or better, how do Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians relate to each other? What should the church do about its Israelite heritage when we came from Israel and yet Gentiles vastly outnumber ethnically Jewish people in this church? So they have much debate. They discuss the question for a very long time. And finally they decide we are all part of one church. And Gentiles do, in a certain sense, seem to have it easier, or at least to not need to keep the ceremonial laws that the Jewish folks feel that they should keep. Gentiles simply need this. They don't have to be circumcised and keep the law. They don't have to become Jewish, but they do need to abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. That's the decree of the council. So that obviously raises some questions. We'll talk about those when we get there, probably in about 18 months. 
But until then, recognize that the reign of Christ does advance, according to Luke, through what we would call bureaucracy, church councils, a bunch of elders getting together and saying their peace. Not always pleasant or terribly exciting, but always important because this is the example that we're set. This is how the church makes big decisions. Not by picking a pope who knows everything. Not by shaking lots and asking chance or providence to sort it out. But rather, the evaluation proceeds by gathering the apostles and elders. And of course, once you no longer have apostles, you just have to gather the elders and saying, here's the question. What's the answer? What do we do about this? So the apostles and the elders give their answer. And then, chapter 16, verse 4, they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. And that verse is the verse on which Presbyterianism is founded. It doesn't say they delivered to them the suggestions of the council in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that they delivered to them some important theological advice for their consideration. It says they delivered to them ordinances to keep. Here, this is what the church said. You will keep this. Even if you didn't send representatives to this council, this is now your duty as a church. So we'll talk about that more when we get there, but that is how Christ rules the church. His reign is proclaimed to the nations. That's evaluated in Jerusalem. And the first time around, it's evaluated positively. Yes, this Gentile ministry is good. Yes, we should be bringing the Gentiles in. Yes, we should be affirming them in their gentility, their Gentileness. They don't have to become Jews first and then Christians. They can stay Gentiles and be Christians. That's the positive evaluation in chapter 15. Well, then there's more missionary activity. Luke gives us these same scenes twice to say this is what the church is supposed to be doing. The church goes out and ministered. The church proclaims the reign of Christ to the nations. And then the church proclaims the reign of Christ to the nations all over again. Because the church will never be done proclaiming the reign of Christ to the nations. Yes, we can envision a time, we are promised a time when the nations obey, when the nations are converted, and at that time, we will proclaim it as a matter of joy and worshiping together rather than as a matter of evangelism and you guys are wrong and need to change what you're doing. But Luke plays the same scene twice to remind us you're evangelizing. You're proclaiming the reign of Christ to the nations. And then there's a second evaluation in Jerusalem in chapter 21. 
a big riot scene where Paul is just seen walking around town and his fellow Jewish folks go berserk. And they're eager to stone him just like he stoned Stephen. It would have been poetic justice. It would have fit, of course, very well with Luke's previous volume, which is all about Jesus journeying to Jerusalem to be killed. And then we could have had Acts where Paul journeys to Jerusalem to be killed. But it didn't happen that way. That was not what God had for Paul. Paul is delivered from this riot by Roman power. But nonetheless, we could say that the evaluation in Jerusalem the second time around is negative. First evaluation, chapter 15, positive. Yes, bring that message to the Gentiles. Second time around, chapter 21, negative. No, Paul is not one of us, say the Jews. Positive evaluation by the elders in the church. Negative evaluation by the Jewish leaders who say, this Christian thing is not a legitimate part or branch of Judaism. We do not recognize this. We do not claim Paul as one of us. Here's the left foot of fellowship. We can't stone him, but we can get him taken into protective custody and we will at least do that and try to get this guy out of Jerusalem. So there's a second evaluation in Jerusalem that takes up the same question. What is the relationship between Christianity and Judaism? And this time insists from the Jewish side they're incompatible. The church had already said in chapter 15, you can be a Jew and a Christian. Now, the Jewish leaders say in chapter 21, you can't be a Jew and a Christian. And of course, those positions have only hardened in the intervening two millennia. And to this day, Jews affirm that you cannot be a Jew and a Christian, while Christians affirm that, yes, you most certainly can. And so, again, Acts is showing us how this got started. Where these positions originally crystallized, both of them, of course, in Jerusalem. And the book ends with this same scene. One final evaluation of the question of the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. As Paul invites the Jewish leaders of Rome into his home and speaks to them for a whole day and ends with the majority of them saying, this is not what we believe. Whatever you're teaching, Rabbi Saul, we, uh, we want no part of it. This is not the Judaism of us or our fathers. And so Paul curses them with the words of Isaiah, keep on hearing but don't perceive, keep on seeing but don't understand. And that's where the book ends with this final split between Christianity and Judaism. Now Paul tells us in his letters that that is not final and that the Jews will come back. But in this time in which we now live, one of the things that characterizes the relationship between Christianity and Judaism is this adversarial in order 
from the Jewish side, they say Christianity attacks our identity. You want to obliterate Jews. And see you've tried. To which we respond, no. Acts 15, from the beginning, we've said you can be a Jew and a Christian. You guys are the ones who say that they are incompatible. But that's where the relationship is stuck. And there have been, of course, efforts on both sides of the aisle to overcome this. In the 18th century, an enterprising Enlightenment-era Jewish man went around Europe and attempted to get in touch with as many rabbis as he could, opened negotiations with the Pope for mass conversion. It was his goal to bring all of the Jewish fold wholesale into the Roman Catholic Church. He failed, needless to say. And of course, there have been efforts from our side to evangelize the Jews, but the relationship is basically stuck right where it was in Acts 28. So Luke explains this, because this is the major question of the book of Acts. Is the kingdom coming back to Israel? Well, let me reframe the question, says Luke, and he spends 28 chapters doing just that. So we have a positive evaluation in Jerusalem in chapter 15, a negative evaluation in Jerusalem in chapter 21, and then most of the rest of the book is taken up with Paul on trial before various rulers. The reign of Christ is vindicated in front of the rulers. Now, in one sense, again, Paul appears to be stuck in neutral. He can't get himself released. He doesn't convert almost anybody during his testimony before rulers. What does he get out of every ruler? All of them say something along the lines of, it would appear that there is nothing illegal about being a Christian. Now, hardly what you would call a ringing endorsement. There's nothing illegal about this. But on the other hand, probably much more realistic. What would we think if the book of Acts showed every ruler who heard the Christian message becoming a Christian? Not realistic. Doesn't happen that way. Yes, some rulers here, some rulers believe, and already in the Gospels and in Acts we see highly placed political figures or people who are close to political power, Herod's household steward, the people of Caesar's household, right? We could say that on balance, we would expect there to be far more believers in the secret service than in the Oval Office. That's the situation that the book of Acts presents to us. The rulers say, guess it's not illegal. Seems kind of dumb. I'm not interested in it. But it's not a crime to be a Christian. But the rulers' staffs, their households, their slaves, they believe this stuff. 
Luke might be saying to us, if the rulers of this age really love something, maybe that's something we shouldn't be loving. If it's what the politicians are all about, maybe it's not what Christians should be all about. So he shows us this variety of politicians, all of whom come to the same conclusion, it is not illegal to be a Christian. The point is that the reign of Christ, while real, is not a political power on the same plane as the kingdoms of this world. That is, you can be a Roman and a Christian. Just like we already saw, you can be a Jew and a Christian. There's no necessary opposition put in there from the side of the church. Because the church is not jockeying for power in a geopolitical sense alongside the other geopolitical entities. It's on a totally different level. Paul was both a Christian and a Roman. Jesus was both a Christian and a Jew. And so it goes. We are both Christians and American citizens. Christ's rule is vindicated in that also from the side of the state. It is not illegal to be a Christian throughout the book of Acts. Now at times the state has gone berserk and persecuted the people of God. But generally speaking, it is not contrary to the law in most times and places to be a Christian. The reign of Christ is spreading and the civil authorities are not stopping it. They may not be advancing it either. They're not stopping it. Now that's a quick summary of Acts. There's one chapter that doesn't appear on here. As all you sleuths probably saw right away, chapter 27 is missing. So is 26. 26 is a continuation of 25. But chapter 27 is the shipwreck. Thompson doesn't mention it in his outline, but we could say that it shows that the reign of Christ over the weather is also vindicated. Paul and his companions go through this storm where they don't see the sun for two weeks. Probably none of you have been through a storm that bad. I certainly haven't. But they're in this incredible storm on the Mediterranean, this hurricane that blows for two solid weeks. And yet, even in that, Christ reigns. Even then, Jesus is still in charge. Not only, therefore, over the human world, over the nations, but also over the natural world, over the sea. Which, of course, Psalm 72 emphasizes, right? He will have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Power over water is power over the ultimate source of chaos and destruction on this earth. One of my cousins, well, my first cousin twice removed, was a hotel maintenance manager for many years. And his verdict on hotel maintenance, water destroys everything. As you all know, water destroys everything. Christ rules 
the waters and the chaos they bring to. So when will he rule the Jewish people? That's the question that Acts leaves us with. His own people reject him, John 1. That is still the case at the end of the New Testament, at the end of the book of Acts. It's still the case today. Does that show that Christ doesn't actually reign? The answer is no. No, it doesn't prove that Christ doesn't reign. He's still reigning. And someday, the New Testament insists, his own people too will recognize that. In the meantime, we need to submit to his reign. We need to obey him. We need to be his people and prove it by how we live as his subjects. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son reigns, that you have set him on your holy hill and that the rage of the nations is ultimately impotent and silly. Father, Christ reigns over the human world, over the nations, over society, over the market and labor, and every other aspect of the human race. And he reigns over the natural world too. Water, and therefore every other form of chaos and storm and disaster. Father, we praise you that your Son is the Anointed One who is Lord and that He reigns. Help us to submit to His reign and help us to further His reign. We pray that His kingdom would come and we ask that you would privilege us to be agents of the kingdom in our walk and calling. We ask these things, Father, in the name of your beloved Son, our risen Lord, Jesus the Messiah. Amen.